So Jesus, we thank you for your word because it is good, it is right, and it is the best. So would you help us to understand what you mean today? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I want to say hello to those of you who are watching online. It's great to have you with us today. Well, there you have it. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Go team. Can you just sort of take us home? Lead us in the... I think we're done here. That is a tough teaching, right? Love your enemies. Really? Is that what you meant, Jesus? Let me begin with a story. One night I was uh, driving up and down the rows in a parking lot trying to find a a parking spot. I was running a little bit late. I was in a hurry. And um, I ended up going the wrong way. Well, some guy in a truck sort of turned down the row that I was on so that he's driving straight towards me. I moved over to the right side, and as we got close to one another, he turned his high beams on, apparently to help me see the cars that were on my right side. Very nice of him. So in order to combat all the glare of that light that was coming at me and to create a light force field to sort of repel it all and send it back his way, I turned my brights on. You know, take that. Which made him just a little bit madder than he was already because the next scene in this movie are our two cars passing each other with this big cowboy-looking dude yelling, leaning out his window and gesturing at me to make sure I knew he didn't like me very much. I'll save the gestures. They don't work in church very well. (laughs) Why do we do stuff like that? Why do I do stuff like that? Because the truth is that force is reciprocated by force. That hate is reciprocated by hate. And bright lights are reciprocated by bright lights. This isn't rocket science, right? But no one is content to simply reciprocate, right? That's not the way it works, because the way it really works is I'll match what you bring, and I'll raise you high beams plus yelling and gesturing. The whole thing spirals out of control, doesn't it? Maybe you're there today. Maybe you've experienced something like that in your past. Somebody has to have some sense to stop this spiraling thing going on. And Jesus says we do that when we love our enemies. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said, love your enemy, not learn to like your enemy, not eh, just put up with your enemy, not ignore your enemy, speak to the hand, (laughs) not avoid your enemy and just pretend they don't exist, la, 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 la. Love your enemy is what he said. Now, there's two commandments in the Bible. The two love commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And these commands, they created, well, they created more questions than they did answers. See, the religious leaders back then, um, you know, they helped to, to, to answer some of those questions, questions like, who's my neighbor? And how do I treat my enemies? So the religious leaders then taught that neighbors were family, friends, and other Jews. You know, they were people that we like and people who are like us, so love them. Pretty easy to do. And that enemies, well, you treat them with contempt. You push them away. You hate your enemy. 
But there was no command in the Old Testament that said that. Like God never said, hate your enemy, love your neighbor. That's nowhere to be found. This is a made-up law, which is why Jesus is responding to it and talking about it right here. So he says basically three things in this passage. And the first one is this, that Jesus pulls down the boundaries that we put around love. He expands those boundaries to beyond the people we like and who are like us. He expands those boundaries to include everyone. Like love your families, love your spouse, love your friends, and love your rivals, adversaries, and enemies. Jesus is basically saying if our love is a social club, then everyone gets membership. Second, Jesus points up to God in heaven. He says, be like your father, love like him. Now, the passage says that God causes his son to rise and his reign to fall on both the righteous and on the unrighteous, the good people and the bad people. The point is that God loves all people equally, without measure of worth or unworthiness, just as we are, God loves us, every one of us. So Jesus is first. He's pulling down the boundaries around love, and he's showing us that we're to love everyone that we lay eyes on. And secondly, he's then pointing up to our Heavenly Father, and he's saying, love like him. But then the third thing that Jesus does here is he points horizontally to the people and the culture around them, and he says, you've got to be better at this love thing than they are. Be better than them. You see, the culture then was very similar to the culture that we have here now. It was a culture of paybacks, which meant you paid back bad things for bad things, and you paid back good things for good things. Kind of the way that works is, I'll invite you over for dinner since you invited me over for dinner. I'll watch your kids since you watched my kids. It's good for good. Now, there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's totally fine. But what Jesus is saying here is the way that we love as his followers, because it points to God's love, it's just got to be so much bigger than that, so much grander than that. Otherwise, we're no better than the worst of society, which Jesus points out in this passage back then. It meant the tax collectors. Now, the tax collectors were considered traitors by the Jews because they worked for the Roman government, and they were considered thieves because they overcharged people. So even tax collectors... They knew this principle of good for good. That's how they operated, which meant that the religious people Jesus is talking to, he's telling them, you're no better than the worst. Ouch. Score one for Jesus. That gets your attention. So Jesus, he's separating his followers from the culture that's around us. And he's saying to those followers, first, love everyone. Second, Love like him. And then third, love better than everyone around you. Love better than the culture. Now, love is so complicated. That's probably today's greatest understatement, right? Love is complicated. So the Greek language, in order to accommodate that, had several different words that described love. There was a, kind of, uh, there was a word that described a kind of love, um, which uh, was sort of the, it was the love that a parent has for a child. And there was a word that described the intimacy between friends. And there was a word that described the passionate love that lovers experience. <clears throat> and then there was this word Jesus uses in this passage 
This word for love, which was agape, it describes a selfless, unending love, a love that always seeks what is good and what is best for the other person. Now, loving our enemies, it doesn't mean that we're going to go through this process and end up as friends. Nor does it mean that we're going to necessarily be family or we're going to experience passion and care for one another, though those things could happen. But what it does mean is that our love is going to get a little bit radical. It's, going to, it's a love that is selfless, a love that is unlimited, a love that seeks what is best for our enemy, a love that is totally countercultural. Now, no other religion teaches this. I mean, this way of treating our enemies, this is uniquely and distinctively Jesus. And when we love like this, then we bear a family resemblance to our Father in heaven, because that's how he loves. And so we look like his daughters, and we look like his sons to the watching world around us, because that's the way he loves. Now, a couple weeks ago, I was at a missions conference, and uh, the speaker was this 24-year-old missionary in Iraq. He was here on furlough, and uh, he told us about a man uh, uh, that he'd met over there. They'd become friends, and one day this man showed the missionary this scar that was on his leg. The missionary asked how he got the scar, and the man told him some of the terrible, horrible things that Saddam Hussein and his administration had done to him, to his family, to the Iraqi people. Then he said, every time I see this scar, it reminds me of how much I hate Saddam Hussein and his administration. Well, the missionary used that, uh, took that opportunity to tell him a little bit about Jesus of how Jesus showed his followers, taught his followers to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute him. And that we can do that because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that we can forgive other people. Well, there is no word in the Iraqi language for forgiveness. And this man said that his whole life he'd been taught to go to war, to hate, to pay other people back, but now... Now he was hearing about this God who loved his enemies and taught other people to do the same. He said, that sounds like the real God to me. And so he committed his life to Jesus, and he's been following him ever since. Now that story is full of love for our enemies. I mean, a 24-year-old who obeys Christ's call to mission goes to Iraq, which is an enemy of the United States. He befriends a bitter Iraqi man, and then he loves this man enough to share with him the good news about Jesus. And the man, recognizing Jesus is the real God, well, he lets go of his hatred so that he could love and forgive the enemies who beat him. Loving our enemies can build God's kingdom. Something happens when we do that, and people shift the way they view Jesus when they see us loving our enemies. Because they see in us a strength, an inner strength, and they see in us a love that is way different than the culture around us. And loving our enemies, well, loving our enemies gives God the opportunity to give us bigger, better lives. You see, it's nearly impossible for us to love our enemies, isn't it? Like there may be somebody you're thinking about now, and you're just thinking, man, that is the last thing I'm going to be doing today. I'm going out for coffee after this. I'm not going to be working on that at all. Blah, 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 right? The only way this is going to happen is if we 
ask God into this situation. If God shows up to change our heart, to change our mind, to change our will. So loving our enemies, it puts us in this crazy situation where the only way this is going to work is if we depend on God and uh, to do, you know, to work in this situation. That gives us an opportunity to experience more of God's power, more of his love, and more of his experience. Now, there's at least four things that we can do to love our enemies. And I want to go through those a little bit today. The first is this one, to find the good that's in the other person. I think that's the first step. It's the first, it's a, it's a tangible way to love people is to look for the good that's in the other person. You see, we're all a bag of mixed motives and desires and behaviors, every one of us. That means that some things are good and some are bad. No one of us, even the best person, has some bad in them, and even the best person has some good in them. Nobody is totally bad. Now, the Bible tells us that's because in some way, God has put his image in every one of us, that we were all made in the image of God. Every one of us reflects God's character, God's nature in some way. It's just that with some people, you've got to look really hard for that image, right? <laughs> of course, I'm not talking about any of us. It's those other people, right? All those other people. Finding the good in our enemy, it means looking underneath all the bad things they've done, sort of peeling that back, seeing those things as sin, understanding that sin is alien nature to who God created us to be. So understanding that sin is a cancer of our soul, of our spirit, that that stuff is wrecking that person. So finding the good means peeling that stuff away to find the, the image that God created that person in, to find the life that God created them for. That's the first step to loving our enemies, to find the good in the other person. And when that happens, your attitude, well, just begins to change. Second, pray for them. We are what we pray for. We're, our faith is as big as our prayer life. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes the world around us. So start by asking Jesus to help you forgive the other person. Give Jesus your anger, your hurt, how justified you feel about the way you're treating this other person. Hand it all over to Jesus because your enemies are all accountable to Jesus one day. He's the just judge. So the first part of our prayer is for us, really. But the second part is for our enemy. Pray what is best and good will happen to them. Pray for their health. Pray for their success. Pray for their family. If they don't know Jesus, pray that they will come to know Jesus. Here's the thing. It is impossible to hate somebody and keep praying for them. Like in that thing, God just changes us. So look for the good, pray, and then third, don't pay them back even when you have the chance to do that. You see, there usually comes a time when the people who hate you, who've lied about you, who have deceived you, who have taken things from you, there's usually a time when they need your help. Like they need a referral or they need some help with their marriage or financial help or help with their kids in some way. And you will be tempted to hurt them and pay them back. You just will. But when you love them by refusing to act on that impulse and instead break the chain of hatred, 
then you let Jesus change you, you let Jesus change them, and you help build his kingdom, like that Iraqi missionary. So look for the good, pray, don't pay them back, and then fourth, do what is best for your enemy. Now, as I said earlier, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is, uh, is a love which always seeks what is best for the other person. Love like this is redemptive. It builds the other person up. It is meant to heal. It is meant to help make them whole. It does the best thing, even when the best thing is the hardest thing. So start by asking Jesus to show you what is best for your enemy, and then do what you think he's asking you to do. Now, agape love, it looks way different with different people and in different situations. It's not a formula. It's not like the same thing. That's why we need Jesus to guide us through this. For our enemy who's suffering from an addiction, the best and loving thing may be to gather some people together who will intervene and who will help that person get the help they need. For a family member who's isolated themselves and just cut themselves off, maybe even said some painful things in the midst of that, the best and loving thing may be to keep reaching out to them, keep on reaching out no matter how many times they reject you. For the enemy that you're not talking to, the best and loving thing may be being the first to apologize and ask their forgiveness for your part in it. If you don't know what to do, talk with one of our pastors here. We would love to help you in any way that we can with this. So find the good in the other person, pray for them, don't pay them back, and do what is best for your enemy. Now, there's a lot more I could say about loving our enemies. Like, it's always a process. Jesus is asking us to love and keep on loving our enemies. This thing about loving enemies, there's no one and done with loving our enemies. There's also all kinds of caveats about this. Like that loving our enemies doesn't necessarily mean they're just going to be so impressed and they're going to love us back. You know that. And loving our enemy doesn't mean that placing yourself in a harmful, it doesn't mean that you have to place yourself in a harmful situation where our enemy hurts us again and again and again. And loving our enemy doesn't mean ignoring criminal behavior. Like God has given us governments to enforce justice because there's consequences to bad behavior. So loving our enemy might mean visiting them in jail or visiting them in prison, but not helping them cover up uh, so they can stay out of jail and continue hurting someone. When Abraham Lincoln was running for president, he had a few opponents, but none as vicious as one particular man. This man traveled the country, said horrible things about Lincoln, criticized him, uh, made up a bunch of lies about Lincoln, even made fun of Lincoln's physical appearance. Well, as you know, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. And not long after that, Lincoln began to select his cabinet. Well, he chose this man, Edwin Stanton, as his secretary of war. And Lincoln's advisors were like, they thought he was totally nuts because Stanton was the man who tried to wreck Lincoln. Now, when they asked Lincoln why he chose Stanton, Lincoln said he'd looked all around the country, he'd evaluated all the candidates, and Stanton was clearly the best for the job. Stanton became one of Lincoln's closest advisors. And a few months later, when Abraham Lincoln was shot and it was announced that Lincoln had died, Stanton was the one that uttered that, uttered that famous quote, now he belongs to the ages. Stanton called Lincoln the most perfect ruler of men the world has ever seen. 
And it was Stanton who pursued the apprehension and prosecution of all the conspirators. Now, Stanton had positioned himself as Lincoln's enemy, right? But Lincoln saw what was good in Stanton, and that helped Lincoln recognize the qualities that made Stanton the best man for that job. And President Lincoln, as president, could have paid Stanton back big time for all the terrible things Stanton had said and done to him. But Lincoln refused to pay Stanton back and act on any impulse to get revenge, so he broke that cycle of hatred. And then, choosing to do what was best for Stanton, Lincoln offered him the job as Secretary of War and made him one of his closest cabinet advisors. And as a result, the relationship was changed, and Stanton developed a deep respect and honor for Abraham Lincoln. Jesus knows how hard it is to do this. And this is a really hard one, you guys. He knows how hard it is to love our enemies. Really hard. Painfully hard. Because the truth is we were all God's enemies. But Jesus willingly died on a cross to pay the price we owe so that we could become God's daughters and God's sons instead of his enemies. Jesus got the worst this world has to offer. Hatred, betrayal, an illegal trial, an unjust sentence. He was whipped, beaten, spit on, and crucified on a cross for everyone to see. Selfless love. That's what he had. Love without limits. His love rescued us. Only a God who loves those who don't love him. Only a God who is willing to die for them. Only that God can ask us to love our enemies too. No other God, no other religion teaches this. God always does the loving thing, even when the loving thing costs God everything. His love is radical, countercultural, big enough to love our enemies, wide enough to love everyone, powerful enough to change us, change our world. So this week, will you ask Jesus to show you who he wants you to love? And will you begin to take some steps that will help you do that? Lord Jesus, we desperately need you in all things in life, and particularly around this subject. Lord, would you show us who you want us to love on this week? And would you help us to begin to take those steps, show up in all your power and all your glory and all your love? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.